0: Welcome to Learn From Others, where we help others succeed by sharing success. I'm very excited to introduce our special guest, Hannah Ryan. Hannah, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing wonderful. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you for taking us on your career journey. But before we find out what you're doing today, let's start at the very beginning. And would you tell us, what did you want to be when you grew up?
1: I wanted to be a lot of different things. Um, I went through... A phase where I wanted to be a veterinarian, and um, I, I grew up on a farm, so I've always loved animals, and so I was very passionate about helping animals. And that sort of transitioned for me into considering the medical field, and so um, I went through a phase where I really wanted to be a doctor. And all the while, though, I was involved in the performing arts, and I was um, putting together plays and skits for my family with my cousins in my living room, and I just didn't really realize that directing in the theater was a career option like to me and um, my lack of exposure to the arts I just categorized theater as acting and performing and so I just didn't really recognize at a young age that my skill set really fit the field of directing it wasn't until I got into college and I recognized that so I didn't identify that as a child. So I was more in the realm of caring for others, like whether it be taking care of animals or taking care of
0: people. Did you have pets on the farm? Like, did you have a duck or something a little unusual as a pet growing up on the farm?
1: I did have lots of animals. I My favorite thing were sheep, and I would show sheep at the fair. I was involved in 4-H and then later FFA. Um, at FFA, Future Farmers of America, I actually would show cows at the Um, But with 4-H, I would show my sheep. But I was very spoiled. I was the only girl, and I was the youngest. So my dad (laughs) would drag me to the auctions where they would sell livestock. And I would eventually persuade him to buy whatever animal I was interested in raising. So I had goats. I had pigs that would often have babies. So I, I I had a nice variety of animals growing up but dogs were always my favorite I always had several dogs as we had land in the so we were able to take care of some rescues that would come stay with us
0: so what was the name of your favorite lamb
1: oh that's easy buddy I had a a lamb named buddy who grew up to be an adult sheep and I had him for gosh probably eight years and we had a a leather collar around his neck with a big brass bell and he would um, come running to me when I would run up to the fence he was completely tame and I had tamed him as a young lamb so he remembered (laughs) me his whole adult life
0: so, Buddy the Lamb.
1: hmm
0: That's awesome. I love that.
1: <laughs> yep. And I, I also had a little chicken, a little baby chick that I hatched in third grade that came home to stay with me, and his name was Peeper.
0: Peeper. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a great name for a little chicken. <laughs> That's cool. Well, what was your first job, one where you felt like you had like some responsibilities and wanted to perform well?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I of course, grew up on the farm, so I was always um, busy and helping my dad with chores around the farm, so I learned pretty early on the importance of a work ethic. But my grandparents, my dad's parents, were actually carnies. And my grandma, who is 86 years old today, is still on the route with an ice cream trailer. She's oh, my still gosh. Farming. Yes. So I, my first job, where I actually got a paycheck, was spending summers with my grandparents on a, a carnival route that they would take for nine months out of the year all through the Midwest. So I spent a lot of time in Bloomington, Indiana, working. They had an um, elephant ear trailer that I often worked in, as well as a sausage trailer and an ice cream trailer. And then my grandpa had an arcade. So I would spend two to four weeks each summer working with them and learning at a very young age, the importance of, you know, counting change and customer service and just like keeping a space tidy and as professional as possible.
0: So we could have a whole other conversation just on the life of a carney for lack of a better phrase. Yep. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I'm sure that's totally fascinating mm-hmm. uh, being in the traveling world like that. So, wow, that's really cool. What were some of your favorite subjects or hobbies in school? It sounds like theater was probably one of them.
1: Yeah, definitely theater. I loved lit, like any literature classes I could take. And I was an avid reader as a young kid. I also loved history. And I didn't necessarily enjoy studying history as much in school, though the older I got, the more interesting that became to me. But when I was young, I would read a lot. So I would read a lot of... different genres of history so I would kind of go through phases like I read every book that was ever written on Helen Keller for one phase and then I moved on to the American Revolution and so I had different phases of um, interest as I grew older through um, I would say primarily American history and I also loved math I was really good at math and I think part of my organization and skill set as a director which has especially as a resident director lends itself a lot to stage management, says a lot about my interest in accomplishments in math.
0: Well, that's really cool. It's interesting you said history. Uh, That leads us right into the next question. What are you doing Mm -hmm. today?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I'm a freelance theater director, but my primary job is um, serving as the resident director of Hamilton on Broadway. And, um, yeah, my, my main responsibility there is to maintain the artistic integrity of the show. So making sure that when an audience comes in on a nightly basis, they're seeing the same show that the original creators intended for the show to be, as well as directing all new company members. So as soon as a contract runs up or someone chooses to leave the show, we'll hire a new actor, go through the full casting process, and then get them ready for their opening night and their life after in the show. So, I'm constantly teaching new actors, new characters and new tracks and getting them performance ready.
0: Okay, I will have some more questions related to that. But how did you get there? Like, could you walk us through your career path from from school up until that position? and then even if you go over like the interview process or kind of the steps you took to get to where you are?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I, as I mentioned earlier, I didn't have a lot of exposure to theater growing up in um, rural Ohio. I really only knew musicals through um, VHS's like whatever was available at my, uh, at my uh, local library. So I watched The Music Man and Sound of Music, but they were all the film versions of the shows. And so I loved them and I was immediately interested, but I didn't know what all existed within um, a career in musical theater. And so I performed. That was what I knew to do. But I'm a terrible singer. So I would always get the biggest (laughs) speaking role with the least amount of singing in every musical that I performed in.
0: Did you know you were a terrible singer or did someone have to tell you? I did. Oh, you it did. was okay. a bit of
1: both, yes. <laughs> my mom was actually a performer her entire childhood, and she's incredible, and she sings in choirs and has continued singing all through her adult life. My dad's terrible, so I inherited my dad's <laughs> singing voice. So I think it between my parents telling me which and me being attuned to the fact that I wasn't getting any better was a sure sign, but I was still passionate about theater, so I still did all the straight plays and um, acted all through my childhood. And it wasn't until I I then studied theater in school, I went through a phase of my um, transition from high school to college and trying to to figure out what I should study, considering nursing, which I think is part of the, like, early excitement and seed being planted of possibly being a doctor. And so I Mm -hmm. looked into the medical field, and my dad and my parents both were pretty, like, encouraging of the stability of that. But I always still had this passion for theater. So... I went back and forth between the two. I ended up finally majoring in theater and began by acting. So I continued performing like I had been doing. And then my junior year, the fall semester of my junior year, I studied abroad in London. And it was there that I saw an incredible array of theater. And most of it was reinterpreted classics which I was lucky enough to see at the National Theatre in London and the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford-upon-Avon. And I fell in love with um, contemporizing classic works and as well as new works. And I saw three wonderful productions that were directed by women. And it, that sort of became like a, a, a pivotal moment for me in recognizing both my skill set and and also that this was a possibility for a woman, that a woman could like lead the charge and have a creative idea, have a vision and then bring it to life on stage. So that really set me upon that path. I came back to San Diego where I was um, in college. I switched my focus from acting to directing. I was disappointed by the lack of productions that my college offered. So I began to work at a community theater in San Diego and just found every opportunity and directed like crazy those first few years of living in San Diego um, outside of college and have never really stopped so I just
0: kind of ground
1: running once I knew that like, once I recognized okay this is where my talent lies and this is what I'm passionate about and I've honestly never regretted the switch from acting to directing it's just always felt like the right fit for me was there
0: a particular moment where you were an actor and you just saw what the director was doing and like was there a particular moment that you're like that is really interesting or was it a gradual thing?
1: Um, I think it was gradual. I think definitely being in London and recognizing, like, the ideas that I was seeing executed on stage or ideas that I felt like I'd either had before or were inspired by and thought that's something I could do, like, recognizing that. But I also remember being a performer and in rehearsal, and I was just so bored. I would be <laughs> sitting back in the back of the theater, like, in my back row. Like, you know, if I was in a musical, I was definitely more ensemble-based, and redirecting the scene in my head like oh actually I would do it this way and that costume should be on that character and why is the set that color and sort of overly analyzing it and sometimes we be vocal about it and I I honestly probably looking back on it now drove my directors crazy because they probably would have liked for me to have just done what was asked of me but instead I would question I don't think I was happy as a performer I think I was always feeling complacent so
0: so when you were making these recommendations were you like pedestrian number four, or were you one of the named <laughs> actors or actresses? A bit of both. I, a bit I, of both. Okay. Yeah, a bit of both, depending
1: on the production. If it was a musical, <laughs> I was definitely pedestrian number four, no
0: doubt. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and
1: those were probably the hardest moments because I had less to do creatively or I felt less involved.
0: Wow. Well that's really great that you realized what was not for you. Mm-hmm.
1: As the, at the
0: same time you saw what you felt you felt was for you and would be a new passion for you to keep you engaged and striving for the next best thing so that's really cool well i know you talked a little bit about the job there pretty quick but could you walk us through kind of like a week in the life of uh Mm i used to do i used to do a day in the life of but that was just a little too hard to do so how about a week
1: yeah a week in life that's a great question and the wonderful thing for me and the reason why i am now in my third year on hamilton and hope many more is that no one week is the same it's always different it's completely based on what's going on in the company, what the structure of the cast is at that particular moment, what the needs are on a weekly basis. So some days I'm at the theater at noon is typically my start time if I have a rehearsal. Sometimes I'm not in until six or seven at night if I'm just going to watch the show. And having that like buffer of time and that um, inconsistency really allows me to also be developing projects of my own. So I have about three musicals in the works that are nearing the production phase and about five to eight straight plays or different ideas that are either, like, just an idea that needs to be written or, like, fully written and nearing draft number 10 or whatever. So various phases of development. So that uh, flexibility of schedule that I have at Hamilton really allows me to continue developing pieces, spend a lot of time on uh, the phone or in meetings with other playwrights and really be... Uh, Working towards the creation of some original stories.
0: Well, that's really cool. So, from a Hamilton perspective, are you contracted? Like, how does that work? The whole—is everybody contracted for Hamilton? I know you Mm -hmm. mentioned sometimes, like, an actor, their contract would be up, so now you're transitioning into someone new that you have to get up to speed. Is everyone pretty much contracted out? I'm not. Yes, yeah. The
1: everyone is unionized on Broadway, so the cast is um, part of the Actors Equity Union, and so they do—they have a, a set contract and it's typically six months or a year in terms of length and then when you reach that period you are offered to extend or um, you choose to leave so when we first casted like a, a new original company we go for the one year like that way everyone's up at the same time or everyone's stay, staying or sticking around at the same time or you only have x amount of contracts to fill mm-hmm. and and then that, within that contract there. Of course, required to perform eight shows a week. That's how many shows we do in a week. And then I I believe it's up to 20 hours of rehearsal time, depending on what the necessity of that is. But we typically would go nowhere close to the max amount of rehearsal time. Um, We tend to rehearse Thursdays during the day and Fridays during the day. And so those become like days where you just kind of keep it blacked out in case you do have a work through or a run through with a new cast member that's coming in if you're an existing cast member. So that's typically like four hours each of those days. So, and then of course, if you need, if we needed more than that, you would be swung out of the show so that you could rehearse in the evening. But that's usually for a character, an actor who's going to be playing multiple characters, who'd be learning another character throughout the week.
0: Ah, so yeah. they do do that. Oh, yeah. I, was, I, I swear i would mm-hmm. seen that guy before. Yeah. most
1: of our <laughs> swings, we have ensemble swings, and the male ensemble swings cover six parts, so they could play six different dance tracks. And then I have a lot of um, off-stage covers that I work with that will cover multiple principal roles. Um, one of the actors I was uh, working with last month just learned his sixth track of a principal character track on Broadway. So yeah, they stay very busy. And it, it just depends on the person and what their skill set is and what their interest is and whether they want to cover multiple roles and They want to challenge themselves in that way or if they're busy enough, you know, because other people do have other things going on outside the building, too. So they all have a different balance of work life. And
0: now when you go there to watch a performance, do you vary where you sit and then do you what are you looking Great for? Great
1: question. Yeah, I do. I, I try to go every other side. So if I'm watching, say, on Tuesday night, I'll sit on the house right side. And then if I'm watching, say, Friday, I'll sit on the house left side. And I try to vary my depth as much as I can, too. Obviously, the closer you are, the more bits of intimacy you can see in terms of an actor's facial expression or their connection with another character and their scene partner. And I'm looking for a lot of things. One of the main things is spacing. Like, our show is very lighting specific and so there are a lot of tight light cues and so if an actor's one dance number off or which would be the equivalent of two feet that could very easily put them either on the edge of their light or out of their light so we have along the end of our stage what we call dance numbers that are like spaced two feet apart that allow us to see you know or give a a nice um, indication of Proximity to a a particular light cue, so I'm looking a lot for that. And it's also important to keep an eye always on safety to make sure that would be um, specific to traffic, like making sure an actor is following the same traffic each time, so that they're not running into another actor. And then all of the intention work that comes with playing a character, so making sure that what they're saying and the way in which they're saying it, the inflection they're using, is in line with the text that we are playing on a nightly basis and so and and the wonderful thing about our show and the fact that so many actors play so many different characters within a single company there is a lot of room for freedom so there is freedom for interpretation i just help guide them and help them make choices that feel in line with the character that we've worked to develop
0: i find that very interesting that there's freedom i never thought of it that way because i always thought you know it's the same exact every single time i mean obviously the big plot points mm-hmm. are and you know the major points you need to have that but so i'm sure that's great from an audience perspective, because you'll see a little bit of changes if you go see it frequently, but then also from an actor's yeah, perspective. Absolutely. To keep yeah, absolutely. yeah, you'll see
1: a different show on Broadway every night depending on who's on, as well as if you see it in Chicago or on the road or now on the West End. And now in Puerto Rico, you're going to see, you know, the, like you said, the structure and the bones of the piece are the same, but there is a lot of room for interpretation, which makes my job incredibly exciting.
0: Are you the resident director for both Broadway and Chicago?
1: I originally, I when I first came on, I was responsible for Broadway Chicago and the first national tour, along with Patrick Vassell, who was the original associate. He and I sort of split responsibilities with all three. As the first year progressed and the tour was entirely on the West Coast, that became a little more challenging for us both to mm. be in a lot of places. So I then took on the tour and Broadway, and we split Broadway. He did Chicago and Broadway. So for the whole first year of my time with Hamilton, actually more like a year and a half, I was bicoastal. I would spend two to six weeks <laughs> in San wow. Francisco and then come back for two to four weeks in New York and back and forth all year long. Now I'm just with the Broadway company. Which allows me some more freedom, like I was saying, to develop my own pieces and keep my feet in both both pools of water.
0: If you had to take a guess, in three years, how many times have you seen Hamilton from start to finish?
1: Oh, my goodness. I average, early days I would average, when it was a new company on the road, I would average watching it about four times a week. Now I'm down to about two to three, so... Gosh, I can't do the math that quick. A lot, a lot of times. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right, fifty weeks in a year. Let's. Okay, so you're you're talking probably upwards of one hundred fifty to two hundred times you've seen it start to finish. Oh, yeah. I would Easy.
1: assume. And then we throw in all the tech rehearsals we've had and run-throughs and put-ins, and yeah, I'm I'm thinking several hundred at this point.
0: So when is the one-woman version popping up on Broadway? Oh, I can't
1: wait. I hope to be involved or the all-female <laughs> cast. I can't wait for the all-female too. cast. Yeah.
0: As a reminder, you can check out all previous episodes at learnfromothers.org. If you're an educator or a student, you can search for podcasts by career cluster, and additional resources are under the resource tab. Hannah, we just learned what you wanted to be when you grew up and what you actually do today, so if you could do it all over again, what would you do differently?
1: I, I don't think I'd do too much differently. I'm very happy. I feel very fortunate to be where I am and working on the show that I'm working on, that no matter the day, no matter what's going on in our world, continues to be relevant, which is such a testament to the quality of the writing. Yeah, I feel pretty fortunate. I mean, I, I went down a lot of different paths to get here based on advice that different mentors in my life gave me along the way. And I continued to ride this wave and I plan to stay on it until, until I get kicked off. So I'm pretty happy with my path.
0: <laughs> well, I know someone in our audience wants to do what you do. So what advice would you give them?
1: I mean, one thing I wish I had done early on in terms of just allowing me to expedite my process and be even more efficient or to have learned more quickly would be to be less competitive. I think at an early age, I sort of had this like feisty, must-prove-myself type energy that I think most young people do. And I wish I had recognized then that there's room for all of us in this career. Like it, it is a competitive field, but there is no limit to the amount of stories that can be told and so, knowing, like, understanding and appreciating the art of collaboration that exists within theater, to allow me to have worked even more comfortably with other people at an early age, I, I wish I had been. I wish I had been aware of that.
0: That's really wise advice because I think everybody, including myself, when you first get started, you feel like you have this. I got to succeed quickly, mm-hmm. you know. So it just makes you like really competitive when looking back after so many years of experience, you know, if you're good, things are gonna happen anyway. Absolutely. Absolutely. So and in talking Yeah,
1: and in talking to mentors or people I've worked with on multiple shows, I've also learned so much that it's less about what you do and more about how you do it. Like my work ethic and my ability to connect and be kind to people has pushed me further than the wonderful artistic idea I had in the room at that moment.
0: Well, are there any current projects you're working on that you would like to share? And I know that they are. (laughs) There are. (laughs) There are,
1: yeah. I'm working on several new musicals. Um, One straight play that I'm developing actually was picked up this year for 2019 by the Drama League, which I am um, an alumni of their director's project program. And so that piece is a verbatim theater piece about the um, LGBTQ community in New York City from the era of Stonewall through the Mark Carson shooting in 2013. So um, I'm developing that through the lens of a docudrama to make it a little more active. And it's, it's a really extraordinary piece because so much of the process and my development of it has been based on the cast and the cast of actors in the room so the original piece was based off of six new yorker stories and now the newest draft and the new incarnation of the piece is the six original characters plus the six actors performing those roles so it's kind of got a new life to it and um will just allow those actors to make it even more personal because now they're also telling their own stories so i'm excited to explore that and develop that this year with the drama league Um, I have the the two new musicals that I'm developing are both at the phase of production. So we're currently looking for regional theater homes for those. Um, One thing a lot of people don't know is how long it takes to develop a new musical. So um, I joined both of those pieces around two years ago, and they were each being written and developed three years prior to that. So by the time I actually am involved in a production of either of those, they'll be about six years old.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Could you walk just briefly through that process? It sounds like you're really versed in it. You always hear of Broadway, Off-Broadway. I mean, it sounds like, I don't know, could you just walk through it? Because, I mean, you, you need mm-hmm. to find a place to land in which to perform and the the steps it takes to ramp up a, uh, a musical like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So usually the idea comes first, and I, I've seen that come from all kinds of people. I've seen that be director-based. I've seen it be writer-based, and I've seen it be composer-based. Like, I'm about to start um, and on a new project with a really good friend of mine, Charlie Sutton, who's a choreographer, and he happened to watch this film and came to me with this idea, and so that's an example of the choreographer having the idea. So it, it can really come from anyone, but basically what we begin with this, the idea, and then you'll assemble your team. So say in the case of Charlie, he then came to me and said, would you direct this piece and help me develop it? And now he and I are looking for the composer. So, And the in this case, the screenwriter is interested in writing, so he'll then become the book writer. So you assemble your team once you have the idea, and then you sort of, at least for me as a director, you step away and allow the writers to create. And then at a certain point, they'll feel comfortable and ready and prepared to share that with you. And so, like I said, with these other two musicals, they were being worked on three years before I stepped in. So that was just the time where the writers sat in a room and discussed structure, discussed song uh, choice. So, like, by the time I was involved three years in, I've been involved for two years. I think just in my time on the show alone, we've already cut or changed like eight to ten songs. Oh wow. It takes a lot of sacrifice. Like in in all those cases that composer spent hours upon hours upon hours on those songs and maybe at that particular in that particular draft they just didn't serve the story in the way that another song could or in the way that a book scene could. So you choose to lose that song or you choose to write a new scene. And so it's a lot of give and take, and it's a lot of collaboration. Like I mentioned earlier, the strength in that collaboration. It's a lot of trusting other people's ideas and being bold enough to share yours. It's all about arguing, too. Like, you have to fight for an idea you believe in, and ultimately someone wins that fight, and that's what exists in the draft. But the wonderful thing about being with a caring group of people is, though you sort of duke it out, you still support each other and keep the interest of the story as the momentum that pushes you forward the best interest of the story
0: so when you get it all together for lack of Mm -hmm. a better word are you then trying to find a location and once you get the location you start hiring people
1: a a little bit backwards you actually the next step would be then to get in a room with actors because that's going to breathe life into the piece like Mm. for for writers in a room never would so you you Hire a cast of actors and you typically would do what we would just call cold reading, which would be just to get them in the room, sit down with scripts in front of them and hear it out loud. And in that setting, usually the composer is going to sing the music because the actors will just be walking in and seeing the words on the page for the first time. So that would be like a cold, rough reading. And then from there, you will go away, make a bunch of changes. And then the sort of next step would be a 29 hour reading, which is a an equity term for the type of contract you're using which allows a director to work with a cast for up to 29 hours. Mm, And so typically with that, if it's a musical, your primary focus is going to be teaching the cast the music so that by the time you complete and um, you get people in a room to see it and the writers can actually see it come to life, the actors have a handle on the music. And so that allows you to really hear it in its full form. Right Or at least the direction you're heading. yeah. then from there, typically what you want to do with those twenty nine hour readings is get producers in from local theaters or you know um, have demos created so you can send them to producers because your next big phase is going to be. and in my opinion, people do it differently, but I think it's really beneficial to take it out of town. take it out of New York City, take it to a regional theater like San Diego or Seattle or uh, Miami, or Atlanta, there's so many wonderful regional theater cities where they have incredibly intelligent audiences, and they're sort of experts at providing feedback for new musicals and development. So you can actually get the next component, which is to stage it and get it on its feet, and the audience there, that extra character that makes all the difference.
0: Oh, that's really cool. Never thought about it that way, taking it to a regional to get feedback and kind of tweak it.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Oh, that's Mm -hmm. really interesting. Okay. Well, did you want to talk about uh, Nettleworks a little bit?
1: Yeah. So one of the side projects that I've been able to work on over the years um, as a resident director has been this formation of what I call my creative collective. And it's a grouping of three women. It's myself as a theater director, my good friend, Mary Hadry, who is a um, poet originally, but now playwright, turned playwright. And she also is venturing into fiction writing and working on a novel, as well as my sister-in-law, actually, who is a artist. She's a fine artist, and she specializes in sculpture work. So between the three of us, we would constantly get together and just brainstorm and um, have creative discussions and realize how many ideas we had that were similar and intersected in a way that made us want to create something. So probably been about four years now we founded our Creative Collective and we've produced two pieces together and we're working on a third. They're really wonderful, unusual, unique performance art pieces because they no one genre sort of surpasses the other. Like they're as much gallery performance or gallery fine art as they are performance art as they are narrative. So all three of our interests really intersect in a way that creates one Fluid, unique piece, and they they range in length. Like the gallery piece we just did recently, was really all up to the audience as to how long they wanted to stay. So you could be in there for the full length of the narrative, which was about twenty five minutes. The other piece we did was closer to an hour. So it's it's like a really fun experimental way for me to tell stories that I don't feel are being told. There's specifically stories of womanhood and a woman's journey. through life today and contemporary times, which has obviously changed a lot recently with the Me Too movement and Time's Mm -hmm. Up. So it's an opportunity for us to speak to that using our voices in a unique way.
0: No, it's really cool and creative and inventive for sure. So that's really neat. Thank you. Yeah. Well, as with most journeys, success largely depends on reliable transportation. And I'm a huge car enthusiast. I have no idea if you are or not. But could you tell us, what was your first car?
1: Well, I was incredibly fortunate to get my dream car to begin with. As I mentioned, I would go with my dad to the auctions and get whatever animal I wanted. So (laughs) my dad um, reluctantly purchased my dream car, which was a 1972
0: Volkswagen Bug. Oh, very nice.
1: Yes, I loved it. It was um, bright blue, and I was only able to drive it around my rural community because it would not go above 65 miles per hour, so I I think we were lucky to get there. It was pretty much an average of 50, so it was not a highway car, so that didn't last too long. I ended up getting a a vintage BMW that was like 1982, I believe.
0: Oh, that's cool.
1: Which was still a really fun, reliable car.
0: That's really cool. Well, what is your dream car? Is it still the VW Bug, or is it something else?
1: I would definitely take a VW Bug, but I would also take a VW Camper van.
0: Oh, yes. Travel
1: the country. (laughs)
0: So I'm get, a big Volkswagen fan. Get the Westfalia that has the, you know, the one that the top pops up. So top a tent, up, yes. You know? Absolutely.
1: So. I would go tour the country and see our national parks in that.
0: <laughs> well, one perk to some jobs is a company car. So if I had all the money in the world, I'd love to buy you a company car based on your job. And I went totally different than what the cars you just said. <laughs> <laughs> but my thought process was, and I usually put too much think- thinking into this, is you're a director, so you're trying to coordinate a lot of different things for success. And so I thought, well, who was the best, quote-unquote, director in automobile history? Bertone. So he's known as a designer. He's an Italian designer, but he really just managed the designers. And so he would make sure that everything worked on the car, everything kind of fulfilled the goals, you know? And Mm -hmm. the, the car I picked for you, which is a really wild and crazy car, is a 1965 Lamborghini Miura. Are you Ooh, familiar, nice. familiar with that car at all? Yes, yes, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, so that's like the first supercar. And it is, the other reason I picked that car, uh, the ones he designed, is because I was thinking of theoretical. This thing is full of drama and style. It's, it's When it shows up, people take notice. It is a beautiful car. It's very artistic. Uh, I'll send you some pictures of it so you can see what the version Amazing. I'm talking about. But uh, if I had all the money in the world, that's the car I buy for you.
1: Thank you. I'll take it.
0: <laughs> <You> take it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking us on your career journey today. What's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you, uh, Hamilton, or your projects?
1: Yeah, you can check me out at hannahmryan.com. That's my website. And then also nettleworks.com to learn more about
0: my creative collective. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Hannah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Learn From Others, where we help others succeed by sharing success. Where will our next adventure take us? Subscribe to find out. If you know of someone who has a cool career story or occupation, contact Greg through Instagram at GregStanleyLFO. That's G-R-E-G-S-T-A-N-L-E-Y-L-F-O. And we will see you soon as we learn from others together.